Good morning. Hope everyone had a great spring break and are back refreshed and ready for the rest of the spring. We will be continuing our series here in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And just as a way of review, what the book of 1 Timothy is all about is he's uh, Paul, the apostle Paul, the greatest church planner the world has ever known, is instructing young Timothy how to uh, live in the midst of a godly church and how to lead a godly church and how to be a godly pastor. And he tells him at the beginning of the letter, at the end of the letter, how to fight the good fight. I believe this would be the linchpin on how to fight because this passage is all about training. If you've ever been in a fight, you must do proper training. And so uh, the Apostle Paul is going to tell young Timothy how to train. Now, I know this passage, he's writing to young Timothy, the pastor. And this section of the letter is about the pastor. But I believe, just like we looked a few weeks ago, the, the qualifications of an overseer, the qualifications of a deacon, they apply to all of us as believers. So we, we're going to take this passage and we're going to overlay it on everyone that calls themselves a child of God this morning. And so I want to look at what is it like for us and how do we train ourselves in godliness? How do we train ourselves to fight the good fight of the faith that Christ Jesus has called us to? I don't know about you, but growing up, did anyone have this on their uh, one of their doors in their room? Mine was right outside uh, as we walked outside. where we, my, my siblings and I would, uh, it, it probably was every day, and I'm sure my parents got sick of it, but we'd go and we'd back ourselves up to uh, this threshold and my dad would take a pencil and mark it to show us how the growth process was going in our lives. Anyone ever do that? I, I'm sure because it seemed like every Friday I, I wanted to see how tall I was. That was all the way to high school. I mean, I'll just be honest. I could not wait to get over six foot. And so, um, does anyone do that with their kids now? It was like, man, it just a, even just like a like a semi movement was it was a great day. I cheated the system. I, I figured out how I could like get on like get off the ground on my heels, but it, my dad would think I was still on the ground. I was really cheating myself. And I think for us, the equivalent is, do we not want to grow in our righteousness and our holiness? Do we not want there to be a benchmarker for us to set the standard? I mean, am I growing in my intimacy with God? And how do I grow in my intimacy with God? And so I hope in some way in your life and in my life, we have that spiritual place in our lives that we back our backs to the wall and we're taking a measurement of our godliness and our growth. And I pray, and I've prayed this all the time, I pray that you and I do not, after a year of seeking God, are at the same place spiritually as we were at the beginning of the year. That's the reason we put the, the reading plans in the back. It's to grow you spiritually. To train you. In righteousness. In this passage, we'll look at three things that every believer must do. The first one is this they must devote themselves in the Word. The second one we'll look at in a few moments is we must discipline ourselves in godliness. And the last one is this that we would desire eternal things. If you want to know if you're growing spiritually, these will be the three markers in your life 
that you can always run to to test yourselves. Am I devoting myself to the Word of God? Am I training myself in godliness? And do I desire eternal things? If you and I walk away from any of these three this morning and we would say to ourselves, that is not true for me today, then I would say and I would implore you that you must train yourselves for godliness if you want to grow in your righteousness. So look at, let's look together at the first one. There will be three sub-points from this first point. The first point is found in verses 6-7a. through 7a. I'll read those again over us. He says, if you put these things, these things are what he just told young Timothy in verses uh, four, 1 through 5. That these things are how we are to understand there, there's people wandering from the faith and to know the senseless talk, the, the senseless teachings that were happening in that day. Remember the two things. Where they were forbidding them to get married and they were telling them to become vegetarians. And so he said, you've got to set these things before the people. If you want to be a, a good and faithful servant, you've got to set these things before the people, before the brothers, before the sisters in the church. And you will be what? A good servant of God, of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Three things we see in those, that verse and a half. The first one is this. We, if we're going to be good stewards of what God's called us to, if we're going to grow in our righteousness and our holiness, we must do this first thing. We must teach the Word of God. That's what he says. He says to young, young Timothy, if you're going to grow in your righteousness, you must be a teacher of the Word. That includes everyone in this room. Not myself, not Brother Frank, not your Sunday school leaders. How do I know that? Flip with me to Matthew chapter 28. This is the ascension of Christ Jesus, our risen Lord. He had been with His disciples for 40 days after He rose from the grave and He is saying this in His departing, departing speech to them. Which I would say anytime that someone leaves us something as they walk out the door to go, go away, we must take note of what He says to His Disciples and says to us, you know this passage well, it's called the Great Commission. It says, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Christ Jesus had directed them. This is 28 verse 16, excuse me. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus said and came to them, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. If you're a believer, you're called by God to make disciples. It's not just my role, it's your role as well. If you are a disciple of God, disciples make disciples. And how are we to do that? Go and make disciples in all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And look what he says to do to them. Verse 20, teach them all that I have commanded to you. So believers in the room, we are to, if we're going to grow in our godliness and we're going to train ourselves to become more godly and more righteous, then we must become good teachers of the Word. The second thing that he says as we devote ourselves to the Word, not only are we 
to teach ourselves, but he says we are to live out the word. So we're to teach it and we're to live it. Wouldn't it be a crying shame for me to teach the word of God every Sunday and then you see me throughout the week and I don't live what I teach? Like at some point in the game, you would be like, man, there's a huge disconnect between what he does on a Sunday and what he does Monday through Saturday, would you not? And that's what he's saying to young Timothy. Hey, if you're going to teach it, you better live it. How, how do we know that? He says this, the word followed. Train in the words of the faith and of good doctrine that you have what? Followed. You are to live out what you are being taught and what you are teaching. It's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 and 16 through 16. You are what? The salt of the earth. Like you and I, not only are we believers, but we are change agents into the world. How do we change the world that we live in? It's by how we live in the world, not what we say in the world. We must live out what we say we believe. Is that not what the majority of unbelievers have against us? The world has against us that we don't live what we say we believe. The, the multitude of unbelievers that I come across say this to me. I believe in your teaching. I just don't believe in your living when they talk about the Christian life. How is it that you teach that, but your church is no different because of what you teach? It's because we don't live it. He says you are the salt of the world. But if the salt has lost its saltiness or its taste, it shall, shall the saltiness be restored. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on. You are the light of the world. Meaning we set the example. A city is set on a hill, cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But they put it on a stand and give light to the whole house. For in the same way, let your light shine. He's talking about your life shine before all people. So it doesn't do us any good if we just are all teachers, but we don't live out what we teach. The last one is this. Not only must we teach the word, not only must we live the word, but I think it must flow from what he says. We must know the word. He says that, remember back in verse 3. To those who believe and know the truth. He says it again here. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Well, how do we know if they're silly and irreverent if we don't know the truth? How do, how do I know this? It's the word here, the word myth, is this old wives' tales. You know what those are? Here's a few of them that I was taught. I was just talking to Jared this morning about, about this. I was like, Jared, what are some old wives' tales you've heard? Anyone remember this one? Don't swallow your gum because it's going to last for seven years. Anyone remember that one? Anyone ever shared that one? Well, I told Jared that one. He's like, that's not true. Like, no, that's not true. Because I'd have a belly full of stomach, of, of gum. Another one that my grandmother always taught me, I think this is because she um, was, had disdain for her own self. She was all of, she still is, she probably has shrunk. She's probably 4'9 now, but uh, all of my life she was 4'11. And she would always tell me, don't drink coffee, it'll stunt your growth. 
well, man, I wish I hadn't drunk coffee because I'd be 6'11 right now. Anyone ever heard that one? Here's another one. I, I, I've debated on whether sharing this one. This is from my grandmother. She, she always told me, um, uh, I'll just share it. It's in my notes. I'm going for it. She would always tell me, Todd, don't pick your nose. She said, because you're going to stretch it out. And you're going to have one big nose. I believed her. That's not true. You can't, can't, I mean, I still, I'm kind of like on the fence on that one. That's the old wise tale. Another one is this. Don't cross your eyes because they'll get stuck that way. I used to always make silly faces at my siblings in the backseat of the car to pick on them. And they would always say, don't do that because if they hit you, your face is going to get stuck that way. I think that's why my face is so ugly. Amen. I heard an amen. First amen in the sermon. I'm ugly. I appreciate that. And then Jonathan said this, and I was like, yeah, that's so true. Remember this one? Hey, don't eat watermelon seeds because they're going to grow in you. Right? And we grow up believing those, do we not? Until we come to a point in our lives that it's like, man, that's a silly myth. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying to young Timothy. The only way I know it's a myth is because now I know the truth. I had to do some of my own research on Google. Thank goodness for Google. So no, you cannot have a watermelon grow in your stomach if you eat a seed. No, if you eat gum and swallow it, it won't last for seven years. That's only I only know that because I now know the truth. How much more so in the church? How many silly myths are in the church? Just to name a few, music is one. That's a myth. Because here's what we know to be true in in heaven. There's going to be all kinds of shouting. All kinds of music. Not just an organ and a keyboard. That's a myth. The other myth that is true is this. Heaven's not going to be full of white people. We don't serve a white God. We don't serve a black God. We don't serve an orange God. We serve a creator God that has created all things for all people. And on and on and on I can go with myth. I've shared it before. I'll share it again. A myth is Do you think God really cares about the color of our carpet? No. Because his streets are going to be lined with gold. Do you think I, does he care what kind of music we sing? Yes, doctrinally. He doesn't care how we sing it. Just as long as we sing it, it's about him. And on and on and on I go. Do we know the truth? And is everything that we do in this church founded on this and this alone? You see, this will separate us from conviction and preference. And that's what Timothy is being taught by the Apostle Paul. But where does it start? We must devote ourselves to the Word of God. Have we, church? Devoted ourselves to the Word of God. If you want to train yourselves in godliness, it starts with here. This is the bench press. 
This is the dumbbell. This is the treadmill that we must train ourselves in. And then he tells us now, as we train ourselves, we must discipline ourselves for godliness. The word godliness is mentioned 15 times in the New Testament. You know how many times in this letter alone it's mentioned? Nine times in this. 15 times in the whole New Testament. Nine times in one of the shortest letters in the New Testament. I think Paul is concerned about godliness for the people of God because he mentioned it so many times. And he says, we must discipline ourselves in godliness. Let's look at verses 7b through 9. Rather, as you give up these myths and these irreverent speeches and you dedicate yourselves to the Word of God, do these things. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while the bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promises for this present life and also the life to come. Circle the word train in your Bible. The word train there is where we get the word gymnasium from. So Paul, if you look at Paul throughout the New Testament, Paul uses all these illustrations about boxing and wrestling and running. I believe that Paul was a great athlete. As I look in the New Testament, I think Paul was a stud athlete because he talks about boxing. I would not want to got punched by Paul. He was a ruthless man to begin with the, with the word. I could imagine his that left hook must have been deadly for the Apostle Paul. But he talks all about training. What do you do in a gym? What do we do at the beginning of the year? We all set these New Year's resolutions. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to train. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to get in shape. Am I the only one? And about by February, you know, Valentine's Day, I've Stop going to the gym and I've stacked up on my ho-ho's. Twinkie's my favorite of the strawberry shortcakes. And then when Miss Marilyn brings you those yum-yum bars, it's all over. Just saying, Miss Marilyn, thank you. But he's telling the young Tim- Timothy, hey, you must discipline yourselves. You must train yourselves in godliness. I'm not going to walk into the gym today and bench press 300 pounds. Now, that might surprise some of you. I, at one point in my life, as a young man, at 23 years old, my bench press was 300 pounds. Now, I cannot probably even put up 100 pounds today because I have not been training myself in the gym to put that kind of weight up. I, I used to be able to run a mile. I might be able to get through the first lap without wheezing. Because I'm not training myself for these things. I'm not putting in the effort for the results. But how many of us want the results without the training? Like we want godliness. Amen? I pray if you're a believer, you want godliness in your life. Like I pray that as you're a believer, that the highest compliment that you would ever receive is that you're a godly man or godly woman. Not kind, not love, but godliness. But so few of us put in the energy or the training for the result of godliness. You know what else that word means in the text? It's a weird word, 
But that word also means to be naked. Now, back in the day, when they would train, they would train naked. Now, I don't want to go to that uh, event. That'd be awkward. But what the Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy, you must get rid of all the hindrances in your life when you train. I've shared this illustration. You don't want me to go run and start training for a marathon with a suit on. I mean, maybe you would if you're cruel. But if you saw me out front and I started running in a suit and you pull over and say, what are you doing? I say, I'm training for a marathon. Wouldn't you say, hey man, let's go get you some shoes and some shorts and a t-shirt? Because this is going to hinder me from training, is it not? I wonder how many of us train for godliness. Well, we haven't stripped ourselves of some things in our life that's hindering us. It's what John Owens, the great Puritan, said. As we train ourselves in his book, Mortification of Sin, he says this, that if we're going to train and train well, we must mortify the flesh and vivify the spirit. Meaning we must get rid of the things in our life that are sin, that are hampering us from running the good race. If there's sin in your life that is unconfessed sin, then you are not going to be able to train well for godliness. So you must go through confession as you train to, to get rid of the things in your life that are holding you back from pursuing the goal of righteousness. You cannot be righteous and look at pornography. You cannot be righteous and be a drunk. You cannot be righteous and be an addict. You cannot be righteous and the list goes on and on and on and on. And so my question to us, church, are we pursuing righteousness without laying aside the things that are hindering us? Because it's like we want the righteousness, but we want our sin to go along with the righteousness. We want our cake and we want to eat it too. We can't do that if we're pursuing godliness. And so spiritually speaking, have you been naked before the Lord as you pursue holiness and righteousness? So how are we to train for godliness and righteousness? In his book, Donald Whitney lists 14 things. I'll list a few of those this morning. He starts with this. We must Learn the Word. We must read the Word of God. You want to be godly? Just start here. Just start here. That if you want to be godly, look at your prayer life. If you want to be godly, look at your worship, your life of worship. If you want to be godly, look at your life of evangelism. If you want to be godly, look at your life of service. If you want to uh, be godly, look at your life of stewardship. I'm going to step on some toes. Your bank account will show a direct relationship to your godliness. Now, I don't ever talk about money from the pulpit. I've done it one time in the four years I've been here because God's Word forced me to. But if you're not tithing to the church, then there's no way you're going to live a godly life because God's 
word demands that we tithe. Now, the, now the, 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 the baseline is 10%. We get that from the Old Testament. That's what the word tithe means. But if we're going to be good stewards of all that God's given to us, we must be good tithers. Now, the Apostle Paul later on in his book in 1 Corinthians says, do whatever is desirous of your heart. Like, if it's in your heart to give more, give more. Tithing is a heart issue. But it's also a discipline issue. So are we a tithing church? The other side to that, church, are we good stewards of all that God's given to us? As a church, not as individuals. Are we being good stewards with this building? Are we being good stewards with our budget? Are we being good stewards with our resources? Are we being good stewards with our gifts, our talents, our abilities? Not just our money, but all that God has given to us. Are we good stewards? If you want to grow in your godliness, look at your stewardship. He goes on to list fasting and silence and solitude and journaling. And the last one I think is so true. We'll get to this one in a minute. But it's perseverance. To be godly will take a lot of perseverance. If you think about all the Olympic athletes, it's their perseverance, not just their it's not just their God-given ability. But it's the way they train, how often they train. It's, the, it's what they put in their body, what they don't put in their body. It's their perseverance that makes them a, a, an elite athlete. There's a lot of great athletes. Uh, some of us probably in here can look back through high school and remember great athletes. Anyone remember some great athletes in your high school? But then you look around and you think to yourself, man, they're just not putting in the effort to become an elite athlete. I played ball with some guys. Some of the guys went on to play uh, Division I. Some went on to play the NFL. But there was a handful of guys that could have succeeded. All those guys, they were just so lazy. And I wonder for us, because I know this to be true because of what the Apostle Paul says, God has given us everything for godliness at our salvation. There's nothing that we lack to become elite warriors and good stewards of what God has given to us. All of it has been given to us at our salvation. I just wonder how many of us are lazy. We are to train. And the last one is this. We ought to desire full things. This tells young Timothy to know the word. He tells young Timothy to uh, be disciplined in godliness. And then he tells them, desire earthly things. I love how he ends this section. He's saying this is a trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In verse 9, he's talking about the latter verses, not these that are coming. In verse 10, he says this, For to this end we toil and strive. The word toil and strive in the Greek mean this. It, it's where we get the word agony from. We agonize. He's saying to young Timothy, hey, your godliness, it is going to be agonizing. It is not going to come easy. So if you want to be godly, the promise is this. 
it is a lot of hard work. Like, you know when you go to the gym and you've had a good workout is when you go to the gym and you're exhausted for two days. Like, that's when I know. When I've gone to the gym and, man, the pain of the gym is still there. Two days later, I know I've had a good workout. But how many times I've gone to the gym just to go to the gym and I do the bare minimum and I leave and within 20, you know, 20, 25 minutes, it's like my body's never felt like it's gone to the gym. Like we must, as we achieve godliness, it must be agonizing. It must be tough work. But he says this, because, circle that word in your Bible, This is the reason that we labor through it, that we toil through it, that we agonize through it, that we strive through it. Because what's the reason? Because we have what? Have our hope set in Jesus Christ. You see, what he's saying to young Timothy in the passage is this. Where is your mindset for godliness? Is it for yourself? Is it for others? Or have you set your hope in Jesus Christ? Because here's the deal. If you set your hope in yourself for godliness, you'll become totally exhausted, even more so than as you agonize through it. If it's godliness for your wife or your husband, you're going to get tired. Like you're going to want to give up. But he said, where are the eyes of your heart set for your godliness? And he says, we've set our hope in Christ Jesus. Amen? And how come? Because we have set our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people because of those who believe. He says two things. As we agonize through our godliness, it's not just about today, but it's about what's to come. You see, we do godly living for today but we do godly living for what's going to come if we die tomorrow. I don't do my godliness just for today. I do my godliness for eternity. For my heart is set on eternity. So that it could be said about me and it could be said about you. As, he, as the, the great writer says this, Jesus himself in Matthew 25, the master said this, well done my good and faithful servant. Like I strive for godliness not for your approval, not for Jenny's approval, not for my kids' approval. I I could care less if any of y'all say, well done. But what will matter to me at the end of my life is if my risen Savior can say to me, well done, Todd, my good and faithful servant. That's my aim for my godliness. It's not just for today, but it's for tomorrow. That God's approval on my life can be set and be said about all of us. Well done. The other one is this, Revelation 4.10. I set my hope on godliness so that when I die, I can get to heaven and I have crowns full of jewels that I get to cast before my maker. I don't want to get to heaven and put one measly diamond at the feet of my risen king. I, I want to have a bag full of crowns that I get to set before Christ Jesus. How come? Because this is true for all of us. 
comes out of James, 1 Peter, and Revelation. You can find it throughout the Bible. But it says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast, who agonizes under the trial of godliness. For when he has stood the test, he will receive what? Crown of life. As much as I'm laying my crowns before Christ Jesus, when I strive for godliness, my God, my King, my Maker is crowning me with the crown of life. That's ongoing. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, that's Jesus appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And last, Revelation 3.11. I'm coming soon. It says, hold fast. Work out your salvation. Hold fast to your godliness. Have, hold fast to all that has been given to you so that no one may seize your crown. You see, my godliness. So I have security in the crown that God has given to me. I don't want to lose, and I'm not talking about my salvation. We cannot lose our salvation. I'm talking about all the gifts that come with my salvation. You see, because if I'm not training myself in godliness, I'll go back to where I was 10 years ago, where the crown of my wife was almost taken from me because I wasn't holding my godliness fast. I was flippant. I was loose with it. That's what addiction did for me. It loosened the grips of my security and what God had given to me. I pray that would be none for any of us. But we must go back to the text. And the application is this today. Where have you set your hope today? Is it in Paul tells young Timothy, have you set your hope in a living God? Or have you set your hope in your bank account? Have you set your hope in your spouse? Have you set your hope in your kids? Have you set your hope in your career? Because all those things are good things. But they will never, never achieve godliness for you. And so this morning, I pray that all of us would train ourselves in godliness. We'd start and we would devote ourselves in the Word of God. Again, this evening, I'll put on our website our reading plan. Every month we do a reading plan together. It will go on the website this evening. We'll start again tomorrow the 1st. My prayer is that if you haven't already, you'd pick up those uh, prayer cards in the back. Does anyone else in here believe in the power of prayer? I want to remind us again, when we started the year, we've been praying that God would do four things in our church. That God, we'd see people saved, we'd see people baptized, and we'd see new families come. Now, I don't mean to put any of our visitors on the spot, but look at the new families that are in the room since the beginning of the year. Amen? Can we not give God a round of applause for that? We, we've already done five baptisms this year. That means five salvations. 
we're not even halfway through the year. And we're already seeing God work through the power of prayer. And on and on and on I could go with all the things that we've been praying for, with all the healing that we've asked God to do, and He's doing those things. Let us grow in our godliness. It starts with the Word of God. It will start with prayer. And it will end with us living out our godliness together as we, the church, set our hope on a living, risen Christ. Where have you set your hope this morning? Let us.